Well, whenever I get to come into the contemporary worship service, I'm always a little envious of Jessica. Gets this great music every week, and so it's, it's fun to be back here among you all as we um, continue in the series on uh, what light do you follow, what light will you follow in this new year. We, we come to a text of Scripture in Colossians 3 where um, it really is sort of a sharp distinction being drawn between our former lives in the darkness and the new life that we have in Christ in the light. So I invite you to listen as I read from Colossians chapter 3. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now, you must get rid of all such things, anger and wrath, malice and slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That last part of that text of Scripture is a passage that ministers become really familiar with because it's included in our wedding ceremonies. Um, as God's chosen, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In other words, Put on God's love clothes, God's work clothes. This is the parting advice in the wedding ceremony for couples as they're about to cross the threshold and begin their new life together in marriage. Several years ago, I came across a sermon by 
Reverend Martin Copenhaver of Wellesley, Massachusetts, and it was on 1 Corinthians 13, you know that text of Scripture that is also used in weddings. You're familiar with it. You know, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love never ends. In this life, there are three lasting qualities, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But that image of love's work clothes has remained with me ever since I came across it. So I used and just stole that title from him essentially this morning. Um, But I'm doing a little something different in the sermon than he did. I got to tell you, uh, in preparing for this morning, I actually had to give a little more thought to what I was going to wear. Because I know there's a camera right up there, and I'm going to be on YouTube this afternoon. And so I thought, well, what do you wear, you know, if you're going to be on YouTube? Um, And, you know, it occurred to me that maybe what Paul is talking about in this passage is we ought to put at least as much thought into what we're going to put on in the morning in terms of our character, in terms of our virtues, And he seems to suggest that we actually have choices to make every day about who we're going to be in the world and who we want to be on this globe. So we're celebrating Valentine's Day this week. I know tonight is the Academy Awards as well. There's lots going on. Um, And I thought, well... Paul's talking about love here. Let's talk about love for a little bit this morning. The the Bible invites us to put on love and to put to death impurities and greed and evil desires. It sounds like it's just as simple as that, as getting dressed in the morning. Each day you approach the closet to choose what you're going to wear, But when you do, think about who you're going to be that day and how you're going to live and interact with other people. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and the peace of Christ will rule in your hearts. There's a reason in a marriage ceremony that the minister doesn't ask the couple, do you love one another? Of course they do. That's why they're standing there. What the minister asks is, will you love one another? That's a different thing. It's not dependent upon the feelings that they happen to be feeling in that moment. And the Bible just seems to be uninterested in our feelings of love, but remarkably interested in our actions of love. An act of the will. In a marriage ceremony, when we say we will love one another, we're committing ourselves to act in a certain way towards one another. Now, last week across the way in the sanctuary, I concluded my sermon by talking about an illustration from um, an article entitled, Good Genes Are Nice, But Joy Is Better. And it's a It's an article that uh, is about a study that occurred at Harvard University, and it's perhaps the 
the best longitudinal study of health. They followed people from the class of 1938, I think it is. Yes, sophomores in 1938 at Harvard University during the Great Depression, 268 sophomores that they followed throughout their lives to chart their health and their happiness. And in doing that, they got a lot more information than they wanted. After following these men, and it was men because those were the only students in 1938 at at, um, Harvard, and this world's longest study of adult life, researchers have collected a cornucopia of data on their physical and mental health. They expanded their research to include the offspring of these individuals who now number 1,300, and they're in their 50s and 60s. And there were people like John Kennedy in that group of people. Um, And they charted how early life experiences affect health and aging over time. Some participants went on to be hugely successful businessmen, politicians, doctors, lawyers. Others ended up as schizophrenics, alcoholics. Um, But they weren't predictable outcomes. Over the years, researchers have studied all of these participants' health trajectories, their broader lives, including their triumphs, their failures and careers and marriages, And the findings were startling. Quote, the surprising finding is that our relationship and how happy we are in our relationships has a powerful influence on our health, according to the director of the study. Quote, taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationships is a form of self-care too that I think is the revelation The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Close relationships, more than money or fame, are what keep people happy throughout their lives, the study revealed. Those ties that protect us from life's discontents help to delay our mental and physical decline. They're better predictors of long and happy lives than our social class or our IQ or even our genetic makeup. That finding proved to be true across the board among both the Harvard men that were the original people who were studied and those who they added much later in the 70s who were inner city uh, people in Boston. Those who kept warm relationships got to live longer and happier. And the loners often died earlier. Quote, loneliness kills. It's as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. End quote. Here's the point. We're all aging. (laughs) I mean, our kids are aging. From the very start of life, we begin aging. And the director of the study said, you ought to plan on living 100 years. Live like you're going to live 100 years. Treat yourself well. And your relational health is a bigger predictor of your overall health 
than anything else. I've always heard throughout my life, mind, body, and spirit. You know, you have to have those in balance. This study reveals it's not just mind, body, and spirit, but relationships that are really key to our health and wholeness. Love is central to our faith, to our own happiness. Faith, hope, and love abide these three. The greatest of these is love. We tend to think in terms of romantic love, I think, in our culture today. The ancient Greeks had three different words for love. You probably have heard all of this. Philos, which we get the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, philos, that kind of love that you have for a brother or a sister. Uh, Eros, from which our word erotic comes, that kind of passionate love that we all sing about and watch on movies and falling in love. And agape, God's love, which is a selfless kind of love, a self-giving kind of love. But for us, the highest form is often the romantic love. We want that overwhelming feeling of just being overtaken by love. But that idea was a creation much later in history. Prior to the Middle Ages, that kind of romantic love was considered a misfortune. Love between family members, between friends, love of country, love of nature, those were all more important kinds of love. And the fact that Jesus commands us to love just kind of sounds strange if you're thinking about that sort of overwhelming feeling. How do you get commanded to have some feeling about others? Love is action, according to Jesus. And that action has a way of ennobling our lives and enabling our lives to become their highest and best and most desirable form of life. Love's a gift of the Spirit. There are many gifts of the Spirit. Some I wish I had. Some I wish I didn't have. The only gift of the Spirit that is given to everyone is the gift of love. It's a gift of the Spirit to every one of us. We're commanded to love. But you have to clothe yourselves in it. We're promised the gift of love because God doesn't withhold God's own self from us. I want to tell a little story. It's a little bit long, but I think it makes the point. So this Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, has a strange old man who shows up at a party of wedding guests. And despite the protestations of the, of the wedding guests, he insists he has to tell them this story of his penance for a crime he committed long ago when he was a sailor. What the sailor actually did was pretty trivial. It happened on a voyage in the South Atlantic. Good weather had turned to ice and fog, and it was an ominous sign. However, the spirits were lifted when this albatross was spotted, a bird that followed the ship to the delight of the sailors aboard. The 
men took the good fortune for granted, and when the, when the weather turned and the ship was guided safely through the ice flows by that bird, that continued to accompany the ship. It guided them through. Then one day, this old man confessed to the wedding guest that he shot the bird for no reason from the deck of the ship. And the other sailors cheered him on when he did it. But as a result of that senseless killing, the ship was becalmed in many days of suffering from the bitter cold and from the heat and from the lack of water. The men soon became enraged with the sailor and their turn of fortune. So they hung the dead albatross around his neck to single him out as the guilty party. And the sailor now came to hate and to curse the dead bird And he despised his own miserable fate and his own stupidity. But still, his penance wasn't complete yet in the story. As the days went by, the ship is visited by death and becomes kind of a ghostly ship and the entire crew dies. You might think of Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) And this mariner is completely alone and he tries to pray but his prayers are completely dry. And in his loneliness, the mariner begins to watch the moon rising over the water and the creatures of the deep, the beauty and its happiness. And then this change occurs to him. A sprig of love gushed up from his heart. And I bless them unaware, he says. This strange new vision meant that the mariner is finally free to pray. And at that moment, he's liberated from the albatross, the cross around his neck. He gazes at the water snakes moving around the ship, and something welled up within him to which he could only give the name love. And he suddenly felt grateful for them. Not because they were any use to him. They were not. And not because he liked them. He found them strangely beautiful, but not attractive. The experience was something quite different from this. It was gratitude for their existence. This sailor who had pointlessly killed the albatross, he failed to recognize it as something that existed apart from him with its own interests. He had seen the bird only from his own selfish point of view. He had seen it as something to shoot just for fun. The whole world existed as something with himself at its center. Nothing else was recognized as a center of existence. His point of view was the only point of view that mattered. But then suddenly he saw these little slimy things in the sea that existed quite apart from him. They had a life of their own, apart from him, and apart from any use he might make of them, apart from whether they looked beautiful or whether they were repulsive to him, to escape for a moment from seeing everything from his own point of view, to let them be independent of himself, brought him finally to an experience of actual love and appreciation. 
Now, I told you it was going to be a long and strange tale. A rather trivial shooting of an albatross. But the author has shown what enables us to have love. And fundamental to that experience is a loss of our own self-concern. Stop worrying all the time about how useful others may be to us. And instead, pay attention to others as kind of a center of their own reality, separate from us, but with enormous value. Usually we experience others not as centers of value in themselves, but as beings who orbit around ourselves. We're the center of our own universes. We don't see others as good like God sees them in the creation accounts. We see others only as useful. And like the sailor, we kill the reality of other things. We destroy it and cover it over by allowing ourselves to be the only thing that really matters. The ancient mariner found temptation, but then redemption by finding his way out of a self-defined world into a world of other realities. Interesting to me that the setting for this long story is a wedding where other people need to discover a way out of their own self-defined world and into a much larger world of other realities. We tend to love because of the relative value of others in our lives. They bring something to us. Rarely do we love because of the ultimate value of others, because we're not the center of the universe, and because we're not the only ones that matter. This seems to me to be close to what we're being invited to in Jesus Christ. To see a world completely differently. And to frame ourselves in that world completely differently. Only then can we love. This is why it's a commandment to love. It cuts the nerve of our own self-centeredness. We become reconstituted in a world of God's making rather than one of our own making. When we understand and embrace God's love for us in Christ, who calls us as friends, not subjects, not servants, he loves us as our best friend has always loved us. Then we can stop seeing others in terms of their value to us and start seeing them independently as having value. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Put to death whatever's impure, anger, malice, slander. Take that stuff off. Clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, with humility and meekness and patience. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Whatever else you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me just conclude with a personal comment. This weekend, uh, my family lost my mother. She passed away on Friday night. It was not unexpected. She has been struggling with dementia for about seven or eight years. And uh, thankfully, she was surrounded by my two of my siblings, two of my four siblings, and my brother's wife. And, and uh, she is now part of the great cloud of witnesses in heaven. Uh, I can't tell you how much I learned about love from her. And I'm really grateful for that. Grateful that for now, for her, the pain is over. And uh, she's freed from that dementia that took her away from us much too early. So as I think about love and I think about what Christ calls us to in love, it's a recentering of our lives. Nothing less than that. So, as we approach this week, as we celebrate Valentine's Day, let your life be recentered in the name of Christ. Amen.